Hey, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Happy President's Day. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. Again, the number is 303-873-1935 if you'd like to join me on the program. And I was looking at uh, some of the commands that are given in the New Testament to believers about the Christian life, about praying, about worshiping God. And I hopefully I'll talk a little bit about that. But in the news, you know, there's so much going on. And, of course, the former president uh, was ordered to pay $355 million in a New York City uh, court case, which many are calling a sham. Manhattan um, Judge Arthur N. Gorin ordered the former president and his companies to pay $355 million in penalties. But part of the problem in this so-called civil fraud case is no one was defrauded anything. The money that was borrowed was repaid with interest. And according to the finding not only was the president ordered to pay, his adult sons Donald Jr. and Eric were ordered to each pay $4 million as part of the ruling. And the uh, Trump organization is banned from taking loans in New York for the next three years. And in that same period, um, the former president himself is banned from serving as an officer or a director of any New York corporation or any other legal entity in New York, that according to the National Review. And um, Trump also told a crowd on Saturday at Waterford Township in Michigan that the New York judge in Gorin was crooked and radical left-wing judge. And so, again, this goes to um, the deep, the ever-widening, deepening, division that I talked about earlier. Um, Representative Rashida Tlaib, who is a Democrat from Michigan, is urging primary voters not to vote for President Biden because of his support of Israel. And Harvard professor has done a study on police shootings and um, a lot's going on. So, um, Russia is also threatening to use nuclear devices if the West, um, if they have to surrender any ground that they've gained in Ukraine. So it goes on and on and on. 303-873-1935, that's the number if you want to join me on the program. And like I said, I was talking earlier about um, hopefully, prayerfully trying to get George Barna on the program about his latest research that he's doing. What I found really interesting about the research was, again, the outline of how deeply divided, how horribly fragmented um the country is, and that the foundational beliefs of America are so disconnected from one another. 
according to George Barna, he said that he thought that the United States of America was incapable of developing a unified perspective on what America is, or rather on who America is, and then what we are and how we will move forward. And he said that in this American Worldview Inventory, he did research that showed that most adults share similar perspectives on less than a third of the worldview indicators, according to the American Worldview Inventory. And some of those indicators I thought were interesting. He said those majority-held beliefs and behaviors are, number one, never worshiping a supernatural authority other than the God of Israel. In other words, imagine in this thing called America, people worship a number of different things. Number two, believing the Bible is an authoritative or trustworthy guidebook for life. Number three, deeming Jesus Christ to be the important guide in your life. Number four, contending that hatred and aggression are not necessary for personal survival. One, two, three, four, five, choosing to repay my money that you borrow from somebody else. So imagine a country is deeply divided over this issue. If I borrow something, should I pay it back? Now imagine the idea that you can borrow and just simply declare bankruptcy. Imagine you have a culture of borrowing and you have $34 million in debt or rejecting the philosophy that you can do whatever you want to do as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. Choosing not to personally participate in an abortion regardless of their belief about the permissibility of other people having an abortion. Not attempting to cast a spell on other people. Taking time to thank, praise, and worship God at least once during the week. Now, so these indicators, and for some people, they might not understand what George Barn is trying to accomplish with the American worldview inventory. But he identifies a number of perspectives about what the majority of Americans are deeply divided over. Which is interesting to me, because what he's pointing out is that in this deep divide over what people disagree about, that they don't seem to be changed, if you will, by argument, evidence, or persuasion. And some of the things that they deeply disagree about is the basis of truth. On what basis are we going to consider anything true or nothing true or everything true? And, of course, whether other people deserve to be respected. Imagine that's a point of contention. Imagine a person says there are certain groups of people that we have no obligation whatsoever to respect. And, of course, when he's talking about the issue of the importance of the God of Israel as an authority or a source or a guide for life, 
imagine a growing group of people who will say, I don't recognize the God of Israel as an authority or source for my life or a belief about the value of human life or the acceptance of the existence of absolute moral truths or the issue of whether or not there's a Satan. And by that, I mean the existence of a real supernatural being called Satan. Um, the division over the means to happiness in life, the division over uh, of morality, of intentionally deceiving other people. In other words, is is it moral or immoral to intentionally deceive other people? Now, again, some people might in the intelligence community community say that's exactly what we have to do. And of course, the issue of the morality of consensual premarital sexual relations. It's disheartening, he says, to see just how out of whack people's expectations are at this very moment. 303-873-1935. I'll be back with more. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'll come back to the story here in just a second. (laughs) 303-873-1935. I was going to talk a little bit about um, George Barna and the number one um, position, worldview position, if you will, that he characterized as religious syncretism. And I'm going to get back with that here in just a moment. But I had to, I came across a story about Jim Thorpe. And Jim Thorpe, of course, very famous athlete. He, uh, there's a picture of him in the 1912 Olympics. And in this picture, in the 1912 Olympics, Jim Thorpe, he's an American Indian from Oklahoma. He was representing the United States in track and field. And on the morning of his competitions, his shoes were stolen. And Jim wound up finding two shoes in a garbage can. There's a picture of him wearing these two shoes. They're two different shoes. One is bigger than the other. And so he has to wear an extra sock in order to fit into the shoe. And wearing those shoes... Jim Thorpe won two gold medals. <laughs> he said, quote, this is a perfect reminder that you don't have to resign to the excuses that have held you back. So what if life hasn't been fair? What are you going to do about it? Imagine you wake up one morning and someone has stolen your shoes. And you rummage through the garbage can to wear two that don't match in order to go forward. That was amazing. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. And um, again, I was talking about George Barna. And he, he was basically... He he basically made the statement, you know, it's a dis, it's disheartening to see how things have become so chaotic and confusing. And then he says, 
quote, this is George Barna, yet it is not a political awakening that the United States desperately needs, but a spiritual awakening that will foster a deeper understanding of self and society in light of our shared spiritual condition. He says, after examining the data patterns and the numerous national studies that he has led over the past decade, George Barna lamented the increased short-sightedness and selfishness that has, in his estimation, led people astray. He says, every American adult has a worldview. And every American relies on their worldview every day to make decisions about their life. That's the function of a worldview, he explained. It helps us make decisions that are consistent with what we believe and what we desire. And so he lists this series of worldviews. At the top of the list is syncretism, 92%. Biblical worldview, 4%. Mormonism, 1%. Nihilism, 1%. Postmodernism, 1%. So what I'm wondering is if the postmodernism and the secular humanism and the worldview syncretism might be meshed together in some way. But for those of you who don't really have a good grasp, perhaps, of what I mean by syncretism. Syncretism is defined by the American Heritage Dictionary as, quote, the reconciliation or fusion of differing systems of belief. And this is most evident in the areas of philosophy and religion that usually results in a new teaching or belief system And obviously, this can't be reconciled to biblical Christianity. And so religious syncretism often takes place when foreign beliefs are introduced to an indigenous belief system, and the teachings are blended. The new heterogeneous religion then takes on a shape of its own. This has been clearly seen in Roman Catholic missionary history. Take, for example, the Roman Catholic Church's proselytizing of animistic South America. Threatened with the fear of death, natives were baptized into the church by the tens of thousands without any preaching of the gospel whatsoever. Former temples were raised, Catholic shrines, chapels built on the same spot. Natives were allowed to substitute praying to saints instead of the gods of water, earth, and air displaced by their former idols with the new images within the Roman Catholic Church. Yet the animistic religion the natives had formerly practiced were never fully replaced. They were melded or adapted into Catholic teachings, and that new belief system was allowed to flourish. More recently, religious syncretism can be seen in such religious systems like the New Age and Hinduism and Unitarianism and Christian science. And so these religions are a blending 
of multiple different belief systems that are continually evolving as the philosophies of mankind rise and fall in popularity. But in Colossians chapter 2, Paul argues that these man-made fabrications, ideas, philosophies, are meant to try to do a couple of things. Explain reality, explain the problem of sin, explain what's going to happen to me when I die. They're looking for explanations. And so as they're looking for explanations, the explanation about Jesus dying and coming back to life becomes the least preferable option, at least by some. So that's the problem. For syncretism, it relies on human wisdom, human thoughts, human ideas, not the revelation of God in Christ Jesus. It's not the standard of the scripture. So the Bible makes it clear what true religion is. Think on just a few things that are stated in the scripture. The Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, Jesus says in in John 14, 6, I'm the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And then in John 20, 31, it says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in the book. But these are written that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So imagine a group of people, they're saying, no, I want some other way. I need some other way, any other way. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we discover what Paul says, salvation is found, or actually it's Peter, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under under heaven, given to men by which we must be saved. So religious syncretism, the amalgamation of human ideas that stand in opposition to the revelation of God, just simply doesn't work for everyone who's trying to reimagine a new kind of religion where Jesus doesn't have to die and you don't have to believe that he came back to life. This is Gino Geraci, 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to join me on the program, it's 303-873-1935. And I wanted to just touch on the you know, on on the the point that George Barna was making about worldviews and what people believe it. And I found the statistics fairly interesting because when he talks about syncretism leading the list of popular worldviews, this makes it important that some amalgamations of the other worldviews are probably taking place, like Wicca, 
or Satanism or moralistic therapeutic deism. And moralistic therapeutic deism may not be something that is very familiar to you, but the term moralistic therapeutic deism was first coined by a couple of sociologists named Christian Smith and Melina Lundquist Denton. They wrote a book in 2005 called Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Now, when you stop and you think about that, that book came out, well, let's do the math. 15 years ago is is uh, 2000, it's 24, so it's almost 19 years ago. So those nine, 19 years ago, it was um, extensive research and surveying being done by uh, the predominant beliefs of American teenagers. Now, as you can imagine, all of those teenagers who survived have grown up. And that even those who claim to be Christians um, haven't necessarily abandoned their worldview. And they named the core beliefs moralistic therapeutic deism, or MTD. And the five core beliefs of moralistic therapeutic deism were, number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and then watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in anyone's life except when God is needed to resolve a really hard problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. So those, they found that these are sort of like the core beliefs that sort of permeated the thought processes of teenagers in 2005. Well, those teenagers in 2005 are now the young adults in 2024. So the beliefs of moralistic therapeutic deism are moralistic in that they place a high value on what they would term as being good as found in number two and number five. So good is really defined by the popular culture rather than the moral imperatives in the Bible. So goodness or the lack of goodness isn't defined by an absolute truth statement and a revelation given in the Bible. So tolerating behaviors in the Bible calls sin might seem as good while calling behavior sin might be seen as intolerant or hateful, which is bad. And so there's a deeply entrenched worldview outlook 
that says hate speech is bad. Now, don't get me wrong. Hate speech can be bad depending on how you define hate speech. But is it hateful to conclude that there is such a thing as right and wrong, good and evil? Is that hate speech? And so the beliefs of moralistic therapeutic deism are therapeutic in that the primary value is feeling good about yourself. Like it says that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. And God doesn't need to be involved except in order to resolve a problem. And so this is a subjective personal situation it's God's job to take care of the things that we can't take care of ourselves. Hence, Benjamin Franklin's statement, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> so the most important point concerning moralistic therapeutic deism, however, is that word, moralistic therapeutic deism. Because they use the word deism because in moralistic therapeutic deism, God exists as the creator, but he's relatively uninvolved in human circumstances. Deists have objected to the use of the term because in true deism, God never intervenes in human affairs. He creates us. He leaves us alone. And for this reason, some have suggested that theism would maybe be a better term. Theists believe that God exists, that he can and does intervene from time to time when needed in answer to prayer. So again, when you're, whether you're talking about moralistic therapeutic deism or moralistic therapeutic theism... It's not going to make that big of a difference because both groups are so far removed from biblical truth that they're not able to distinguish one from the other. So the beliefs of moralistic therapeutic deism aren't isolated to the millennials. It seems that many people simply view God as a cosmic genie, a divine bellhop, a roadside assistant mechanic, or as Bob Dylan used to sing, do you ever wonder what God desires? Or is he just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires? When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up? When are you going to wake up and strengthen the things that remain? Now, it's interesting to me because of the popular designation of the word woke and wokeism. It comes from the idea of when are you going to wake up? But for the woke, for the, for the people who believe in what I call ideological social justice, wokeism 
they may adopt in a syncretistic manner bits and pieces of moralistic therapeutic deism. But biblical Christians will have problems with every single point of the moralistic therapeutic deism. Number one, not just a God exists, but the God of the Bible exists. So when we ask and we answer the question, well, do you believe there's a God? A lot of people will say yes. But when you press them and you say, what kind of God is God? What is the God that you believe in? Is it the God who reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Interesting. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you seek and choose to join me on the program. 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Hey, welcome back. Ladies and gentlemen, the number is 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Barbara, welcome to the program. Thank you. I have a question. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 28 through 29. Yeah, that's a tough one. I'm surprised you didn't wait till Tough Question Tuesday to ask me that question. <laughs> but let me let me just, for people who are listening, let me quote the passage, okay? Okay. It says, it says, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lies with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. So some people read that passage and they go, wow, that sounds, this is proof positive. The Bible's cruel and backwards and miscegenous. It hates women and it, it condones rape victims. In, in the NIV, it reads like this. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman for he has violated her. He can never divorce her. So some people read that and they go, you mean the rape victim has to marry the guy? How is that fair? Now, what's problematic is in the Hebrew language, that word that's translated rape can mean other things. There was a, an apologist named Greg Bonson who says, quote, the Hebrew word simply means to take hold of something or grasp it in hand and by application to capture or seize something. So it was a verb used for handling, like, you know, when you're playing a harp or a flute or the way you handle a sword or a sickle when you're harvesting grain or the way you hold your shield or the oars when you're rowing in the water or a bow when you're shooting it. So it's, it's likewise used for taking God's name 
or or dealing with the law of God, Joseph's garment was grasped in Genesis chapter 38. So even as Moses took the two tablets of the law, it's the same word that's their translated rape. So it's it's necessary to take Deuteronomy chapter 22 together with Exodus chapter 22 verses 16 and 17, which says this. If a man seduces a virgin who's not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. So the idea seems to suggest that if a a man seduces a virgin, whether she's willing or unwilling, in other words, there seems to be some evidence that consent or consensual uh, participation is taking place. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So when you take the two passages covering the same situation, a man is sleeping with a virgin who's not betrothed. And you'll note that in Exodus chapter 22, there's no hint of force or rape. There's only seduction. So the penalty is that he has to pay the dowry. He has to pay the dowry and marry the girl if the girl's father doesn't like the match and he can refuse to allow the marriage. So according to halakha, which is, which is the Jewish law, the girl has a similar right of refusal. But the man who fooled around has to pay the price. You know, we have an old expression in, in our culture, why... Um, buy the cow if all you get to do is drink the milk. In other words, there was this problem in human nature. And so one Old Testament scholar, a woman, says guys were required to man up. In other words, you had sex with this woman, you need to make it right. You need to make it right. So if you step back from the passage... And you think about it in its context, in the overall biblical context. I think what it is, it's a passage that's devoted to protecting women, not persecuting women, or to deal with crimes involving women. And there are other passages that actually deal with crimes uh, involving women. So if a bride is accused of premarital promiscuity but is innocent the bride and her family can receive damages. If a bride is accused of premarital promiscuity and is guilty, she's executed in verses 20 and 21. So that's the other thing that you need to think about, which seems to indicate consent. Now, again, if it's rape, then he's killed. So if a man and a, and a married woman commit adultery, they're both executed. And so verses 23 and 29 deal with crimes involving an unmarried woman. A man and a betrothed woman commit what seems to be consensual um, sex, fornication, and they're both executed in verses 23 and 24. If a man is found guilty of rape, he's executed, verse 25 and 27. If a man and a non-betrothed woman commit consensual sex, damages are due to the girl and her family. And so the fact that Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 28 and 29, I think deals with consensual sex and not rape is proved in a number of different ways. 
if you look at the parallel law in Exodus 22 and um, the seizing of the girl, the way it's translated in the ESV in the New King James, has more to do with seduction than coercion. I know this is a long answer to a really difficult question, but I hope that that helps. That helped out a lot. Our pastor brought it up in church yesterday, and I I was a victim of rape. Yeah, so let me be blunt about that, okay? The Old Testament never commands a rape victim to marry her rapist. Let me just be clear about that, okay, Barbara? I just need to say that not just for your benefit, but for everybody who's listening. The Old Testament does not, I repeat, it does not command a rape victim to marry her rapist. That's my reading of it. I hope I hope that makes better sense to you. It does. You've been a great help. Thank you. No, thank you. I mean, I know it's a hard question, and it sounds to me like it's a very personal question, and it's a very painful question. Exactly. And so that's, I think, the meaning. There's a, a, a one Bible teacher says, in Deuteronomy, victims of sexual misconduct were constitutionally, that means the revelation of the law, protected from the economic consequences of assault and seduction. In other words, the law that said, hey, you're going to have to man up. You're going to have to own up, and you're going to have to be responsible. The idea is that this is consensual, that that a woman isn't just simply being taken advantage of. But, yeah, for, for the woman who's raped, the guy dies. Because it it understands just how serious the pain, the heartache, and the horror, the trauma that's caused when that happens. That's that's how valuable you are. Thank you, Gino. Hey, you are welcome. Thanks for listening, and I hope it's been helpful and interesting at the same time. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me. Yeah, that's a tough, tough, tough question. Tuesday question. (laughs) But hopefully, prayerfully, I'll be back tomorrow taking your calls, answering your questions. Thanks for joining me, and thanks, Jim, producer. 